Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. A couple years ago, my family and I took a trip to Colorado, and while we were driving around in the mountains, we noticed a sign uh, that said Continental Divide. I actually found it there, and uh, it's a Hoosier Pass, which is appropriate because we're kind of Hoosier-ish. But anyways, we were there at the Continental Divide. For those of you who don't know what the Continental Divide is, it is an invisible line that goes all the way from Canada uh, down to the United States, through the Rocky Mountains, through Colorado, and on one side of the Continental Divide, all of the rainwater sheds into the Pacific Ocean. And on the other side of the Continental Divide, all of the rainwater sheds into the Atlantic Ocean. In today's passage, we will be stepping over the Continental Divide in the Gospel of Mark. The first part of the Gospel of Mark, from Mark chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 8, verse 30, is all about answering the question, who is Jesus? As a matter of fact, the Gospel of Mark starts with this claim. It says the beginning of the Gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then seeks to prove that claim throughout those first eight chapters by showing how Jesus has miraculously healed the sick, calmed the storm, fed the 5,000. All of that is to show, to try to prove that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. So the first half of the Gospel of Mark is all about who is Jesus. The second half of the Gospel of Mark, the focus is what did Jesus come to do? And so today's passage uh, is very comprehensive in the scope of Christianity in terms of what we believe and what that means for our life. It tells us who Jesus is what that has to do with us and what that means for the way that we should live here in Green Bay, Wisconsin in 2022. And so if you would, please open up to Mark chapter eight. We have a lot to cover in the passage today. We're gonna be looking in total at verses 27 through 38. As you turn there, just to give you a brief recap of where we were, uh, last week we saw that Jesus and his disciples landed at Bethsaida, and Jesus heals a blind man, but he does it in a very peculiar or unique way. It's almost as if Jesus does a two-step in healing this man. At first, he partially heals this man, and the man can kind of see the stuff that's going on around him, but everything's kind of blurry, and so Jesus then fully heals him. And the reason why Jesus heals this man in this way is because it is a parable of our own spiritual sight. That Jesus does, in fact, make us see. But even as we see, we see things blurry. And we will not see things fully and clearly until we are in glory with Jesus himself. All of that is important background today as we are reminded of these dim-sighted disciples that are growing in their clarity of vision of who Jesus is and what he came to do, and what that means for our lives. And so let's look today. We're going to just start with verses 27 through 29, but eventually we'll work our way to the end of the chapter. So Mark chapter 8, 
verse 27. This is God's word. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to this passage today, this, this pivotal point in the gospel of Mark, Lord, pray that it would be a pivotal point in our own lives where more of us would be surrendered to more of you, that your identity would overwhelm us, change us, and transform us. We pray that you would do this through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This past week, I watched a documentary called Torn. Uh, spoiler alert, I'm going to completely ruin the movie, all right? You're there, I'm going to save you 90 minutes of your life, depends how you want to view it. But I was watching this movie, Torn, and it's a documentary about this world-famous, legendary mountain climber named Alex Lowe, Alex Lowe, and he was the best of the best, a once-in-a-century climber. Unlike most climbers, Alex got married, and he had three children, and yet he continued to travel the globe and do death-defying things with his family at home. Alex loved his kids, but his kids didn't really know him because he was always gone around the world. In October of 1999, uh, he and his best friend Conrad and a cameraman were climbing up a mountain when they got stuck below an avalanche. Alex and the cameraman passed away, but Conrad, his best friend, escaped barely. In devotion to his fallen friend, that Christmas, Conrad drives to Bozeman, Montana and shows up on the front porch with a whole bunch of Christmas gifts for Alex's widow, Jennifer, as well as his children. During that time, he also shares with them that he wants to take them to Disneyland because that was Alex's dream, was to take them to Disneyland. Near the later part of the movie, you find out that over the next year, Jennifer and Alex's friendship blossoms into a romantic relationship. And after about a year, they get married. And so for the next 20 plus years, Conrad raises these three boys of his fallen friend and loves their mama. He takes them on adventures, takes them camping. He provides for them financially, relationally. Near the end of the movie, there is this very powerful moment when the three boys who are now grown up are asked two questions. The first question is, when you talk about Alex, that is your fallen father, your biological father who passed away, when you talk about Alex, what do you call him? And all of them said, we call him Alex. And they said, when you talk about Conrad, the man who raised you from a young child, what do you call him? And they all said, we call him dad. Here's the point. Our identity and the identity of others is not so much revealed by the titles that we claim, but by the way that we live our lives. Conrad was called dad, not because he told those boys, you have to call me dad, although he could have done that, but because he embodied and lived out the title of dad, loving and caring and providing for these children. 
Jesus asks many penetrating questions in the Gospels. Like, why are you so afraid? Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Why do you doubt? But today comes the most penetrating question of all, the most important question asked in the history of mankind. And it's a question that he not only asked of his disciples there in that day, but asked of his disciples today. It is the single most important question. It is a question from Jesus, who do you say that I am? And so let me ask you this question, who do you say Jesus is? Now, before you give the Sunday school answer, I want to break down this question in three ways in the way that I think this passage does, which is who do you say Jesus is with your words? Who do you say Jesus is with your will? And who do you say Jesus is with your walk? Okay, so first, who do you say Jesus is with your words? Look at verse 27 with me again. It says, and Jesus went on with the disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. As you know, I like maps. And so up here, you'll see a map. Remember, they were just in Bethsaida where he did the healing of the blind man. And now they're taking a 20-minute journey up to, sorry, 20-mile journey up to Caesarea Philippi. And so they have some time on their hands and Jesus strikes up this conversation. It goes on and says, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now notice, Jesus does not ask them, what do people think of my teaching? What do they think of my miracles? Jesus wants to know what people assume about his identity. Who do people say that I am? This is different than every other religion. In every other religion, whether it be uh, the leaders be Confucius or Muhammad or Joseph Smith, the real primary question is, what do you think about their teaching? But for Christianity, the foundational, most preeminent question is, who do you believe Jesus to be? And so Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? Verse 28, and they told him, John the Baptist someone who called out the wickedness of the society. Others say Elijah, a great man of God who never died but was called up into heaven. And others say one of the prophets, those who foretold what they sold, saw in the, in, in the community, but also foretold what was to come. These conclusions about Jesus' identity are not so different than the conclusions that people come to today. People say, oh yeah, Jesus, I like Jesus. You know, Jesus was a great man. He was a revolutionary thinker. Jesus was a fantastic teacher. If people said these things about me, I would be overwhelmed and flattered beyond belief. But for Jesus, that is not enough. Pastor Kevin Young points out that simply claiming Jesus as John the Baptist, or Elijah, or the prophets was not enough. It is an insult to Jesus because as great as those men were, they were merely pointers. And Jesus is the point. To call Jesus anything less than the Christ, the Son of God, is insufficient. And so Jesus turns this question about his identity onto his disciples, those who have been walking with him and talking with him and living with him, those who know him the best. Verse 29, and Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. That is the Messiah, the anointed one. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
And the parallel account of this in the Gospel of Matthew, his profession of faith has expanded a little bit. We're told more. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And instead of denouncing this claim as heresy, Jesus affirms it by saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You know, it so happens that as Jesus is asking this question, who do you say that I am? They're traveling up to an area that is very polytheistic, meaning they have a lot of different gods. They worship Caesar and they worship many of the Roman gods in that area. And Peter, as a representative of the apostles, answers the question of Jesus, not by saying that you are a Messiah or an anointed one or a Christ, but he says you are the Messiah, you are the anointed one, you are the Christ. That Jesus is the prophesied one in Genesis 3 that would come and crush the head of Satan. That Jesus is the one spoken of in 2 Samuel 7 that will come from the line of David and establish an eternal kingdom. That Jesus is the one foretold in Isaiah 7 who will be born of a virgin and be called Emmanuel because it will be God with us. This is who Peter and the apostles claim Jesus to be. And anything less is insufficient and offensive to Christ. Let me give you an example. Today is Father's Day, as many of you know. And this afternoon, I will probably be sitting at my dining room table eating a steak dinner. And sometime during that dinner, my guess is that my children will bring me some cards that they yet have to make. But anyways, maybe not. But, 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 you know, one of my children will bring me a card, and on the front, it will be a picture of me and him, you know, drawn. I'll think, oh, how lovely is that? And, and it, I'll open the card. And what if the card said, you are my favorite mammal. Okay, all right. Okay, good. I guess I, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. What if I open the next one and said, I'm so thankful that you are tall. All right. I open the next one and said, I'm, I'm thankful that you make money. The next one says, I, I'm so thankful you can drive, right? Nothing they said in those cards is untrue but they are incomplete, and their incompleteness is offensive and hurtful. See, I'm not just a tall, driving, money-making mammal. I'm their dad. I'm their dad. And that's the title that I have, uh, re- that, that, that I have received from God, but also the title that I've, I've earned as I've lived in their lives and loved them and cared for them. Who do you say Jesus is? I'm not asking you who your friends say Jesus is. I'm not asking you who your mom and dad say Jesus is. I'm not asking you who the world says Jesus is. I'm not asking you what the church, who the church says Jesus is. I'm asking you, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you proclaim him to be with your words? Do you think he's just a good teacher? Do you think he's just a great man? Jesus is not a pointer. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And so who do you say Jesus is with your words? Secondly, who do you say Jesus is with your will? So here in verse 31, we are stepping over that continental divide, the transition from who is Jesus to what did Jesus come to do? How does Jesus fulfill his role as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world? Look at verse 31. It says, and he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man. Let's pause there for a minute. This term, Son of Man, is very important in the New Testament. It is Jesus' most favorite designation of himself. 
14 times in the Gospel of Mark, he calls himself the Son of Man. It primarily comes from a vision from Daniel chapter 7 when one like the Son of Man comes on the clouds before the God of the universe. And the Son of Man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom, but not just any old kingdom. He is giving a kingdom that extends over the entire world, a kingdom that will go on forever and ever, a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And so Jesus starts referring to himself as the son of man. And you can imagine how excited the disciples got about this. They had been living under the thumb of Roman oppression for a long time. They did not like it. They wanted to be their own people, be their own kingdom. And here is Jesus coming, doing miraculous things, saying, I am the son of man. And they're thinking, oh, great. He's going to take the throne in Jerusalem. He's going to conquer the Romans. He's going to establish a kingdom that will bridge out over the entire world. He's going to establish a kingdom that will never end, that no one will conquer us ever again. And so they are so excited about Jesus coming as the Christ, as the Son of Man, to establish this political kingdom as a political Savior. But all of that gets turned on its head very quickly. So verse 31 again, and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And then here's the bombshell. And be killed. And after three days, rise again. You could imagine how devastating this must have been for the disciples. Who heard Jesus using this term, son of man, and hoping and dreaming that he would establish this political earthly kingdom that would conquer all other kingdoms of the world. And yet here is their hope, their hero. And he's saying, I have come to die. It made no sense to them. How could a king win by losing? How could a king bring life by dying? Verse 32, and he said this plainly, meaning Jesus no longer talked about his death and veiled language like a seed falling into the ground. He says it very plainly, very clearly. And because of that, we read, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This rebuke is a very violent rebuke. It's the same term used when Jesus rebukes the demons and calls them out of people. The same term used when Jesus rebukes the winds and waves and tells them to be still. And so just a few verses earlier, Peter professed Jesus as the Christ, but now he has the audacity to rebuke Jesus as the Christ. And the reason is because the will of Peter was different than the will of God. Peter liked the idea of the Christ as the son of man prophesied in the book of Daniel, the one who would establish this everlasting kingdom. But what Jesus is claiming here is he is not only the son of man prophesied in the book of Daniel, but he is also the suffering servant prophesied in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, we learned that the Christ that would be coming would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, that the Christ would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, that the Christ who was to come would be like a lamb led to the slaughter, that the Christ who was to come would be cut off from the land of the living and stricken for the transgressions of God's people, that the Christ who was to come, it would be the will of the Father to crush him. You know, earlier as the representative of the apostles, Peter makes this great profession that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus tells him to tell no one. Have you ever wondered why Jesus tells them to tell no one? Well, the reason is, is because the Christ that they had professed 
was only half the Christ that Jesus came to be. Peter wanted a Christ that fulfilled all the prophecies of the kingly son of man in Daniel, but a Christ that did not fulfill the prophecies of the suffering servant in Isaiah. Peter wanted a Christ who had a crown, but not a cross. He wanted a Christ who had a throne, but no thorns. He wanted a Christ that would establish a worldly political kingdom instead of a heavenly spiritual kingdom. There are still many today who profess the name of Jesus Christ, who look to him to be a political Messiah, even in our own country, as if we are the people of God in America, as if we are that city set on a hill. They're looking for this political, worldly salvation. I have a pastor friend of mine, elderly, he's retired now, and he went to go visit his daughter down in Texas, and they went to this mega church down in Texas, and the pastor gets up and he says, you know what I just realized this week? If you spell out Jerusalem, do you know what is in the middle of that word Jerusalem? U-S-A, U-S-A, U-S-A. And and, and they're going crazy about this. You see, this pastor felt like America was God's nation and he was establishing his kingdom here in America. It's silly how ethnocentric we can be. You wonder what language is that true? And only in English, right? Now, don't get me wrong, we should engage in politics with the principles of Christ, with the love of Christ. We should speak into politics with the values of Christ, but we should not idolize our political kingdoms as our means of worldly salvation. We should think of our primary citizenship being in heaven. Peter was putting his hope in this political Christ, as many Christians still do today. And here is Jesus' response in verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, making sure all of them heard this, he rebuked Peter as a representative and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Just four verses ago, Peter made this great profession of faith, and now here, Jesus is calling him Satan's. The wheels have come off the tracks pretty quickly, haven't they? This is a great reminder that even the best of men are men at best. They still see dimly. They still don't fully understand. Jesus rebukes Peter and calls him Satan, not because Peter is literally Satan, but because because Peter's message echoes the message of Satan, that Jesus does not have to die for us, that we can have heaven on earth, that we can take care of our own sin problem. When Peter rebukes Jesus, Jesus hears the voice of Satan tempting him to abandon God's plan of salvation. But did you notice how emphatic Jesus was about this plan of salvation? Verse 31 says, the son of man must. It's emphatic, he must. So much is contained in that word must. The son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. Why must Jesus die? Why must he embrace a cross before a throne? It's because your transgressions must be atoned for. It's because there must be a shedding of blood for your forgiveness of sins. It's because there must be a death so that we can have life. Why must Jesus die? Jesus must die for our salvation. Jesus must die to get us into the kingdom of God. What was the will of Peter? A half of Christ 
who would establish a political earthly kingdom. But the will of God was that Jesus would come and establish a greater kingdom, a bigger kingdom, a global kingdom, an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that would infiltrate every other kingdom of this world and a kingdom that would have no end. And he would populate this kingdom through his death and resurrection. And so can I ask you, what is your will for the Christ? Is your will for the Christ simply to bring down the gas prices? Is your will for the Christ to provide you a perfectly healthy body? Is it for a Christ to supply you a Christian political nation? Christian, dream bigger. God wants to bring you into his glorious, universal, eternal kingdom with a Christ as king who suffered and died and rose again to open the entrance to the kingdom of God for all eternity. And so just to recap, who do you say Jesus is with your words? Is he just a good teacher, a moral example, a great man? Or do you say that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God? Who do you say Jesus is with your will? Is he simply a a savior who gives you all the neat things that you want, worldly comforts? Or is he the Christ who has given up all of his comfort to save you and draw you to himself. Finally, who do you say Jesus is with your walk? That is by the way that you carry yourself, the way that you live your life. Just last chapter, Jesus says to the religious folks, he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, these people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And so how do we know that's not us? How do we know that we are not just proclaiming Jesus as the Christ with our words, but our hearts are far from him? What does it look like? Not simply to be verbal believers of Jesus, but actual followers of Jesus. Look at verse 34. He says, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To take up your cross is more than enduring worldly hardships and pain that comes to all human beings. This embracing of the cross is to embrace the pain and the shame and the cruelty of the cross that Christ bore. We are not called to be detached observers of Christ's suffering, but joyful participants of the sufferings of Christ. If you truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, you will follow him, not only in Galilee where all the wonderful miracles are taking place, but also in Jerusalem where he carries his cross. Make no mistake, faithfully following Jesus is costly. It will cost you your money as you give to the church and you give to kingdom initiatives and you give generously to those who are in need. It will cost you your time as you serve not only the church, but also your neighbor and the poor and the lonely and the marginalized, faithfully following Jesus will cost you your reputation as people will write you off as those super religious people. Faithfully following Jesus may cost you friendships as people don't want to invite you to their parties because they want to do sinful things without any conviction in their heart at all. Faithfully following Jesus will cost you emotional energy as you engage people who are hurting and depressed and struggling. Faithfully following Jesus will cost you your will as you submit to the word of God above your own passions. Faithfully following Jesus will even cost you your popularity as you hold out biblical principles that the world say are old-fashioned or archaic or even narrow-minded and hateful. 
There are many who will promote a cushy, costless, and crossless Christianity. But Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, just to be clear, your salvation costs you absolutely nothing. Not a penny, not a shred of righteousness. It is the free gift of God. Salvation costs you absolutely nothing, even though it costs Jesus absolutely everything. Your salvation costs you nothing. But to be a follower of Christ cost you absolutely everything. Because Jesus does not just want part of you, Jesus wants all of you. And so the question we're left with is why would anyone follow Jesus? If it's so costly, why would we give up everything to follow Jesus? Wouldn't it be better just to seclude and and hold on to our worldly treasures? Why sacrifice to follow Jesus? Well, verse 35, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. In this portion of the passage, to save your life means to save your your agendas, to save your personhood, to save your passions and your priorities, to save your self-centered life. Whoever saves his life will lose it. But then he goes on, he says, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is a warning. If our profession of Jesus as the Christ costs us absolutely nothing. If it does not cost us our comfort or our time or our money or our efforts or our energy, then chances are we are not really a Christian. That it is not a real profession of faith in Christ. Let me give you an example, another Father's Day example. If you would meet a man who claims to be a dad because he was the biological father of another child, and he told you that that, that child does not cost him any of his time, any of his comfort, any of his money, any of his efforts, any of his energy, if that child costs him absolutely nothing, you would conclude he is not a dad. He's a a deadbeat father, right? He may be a biological father, but he is not a dad to that child. In the same way, if your Christianity costs you nothing, if you say Jesus is the Christ, but it does not shape the way you live your life, the sacrifices you make in your life, then chances are you are not really a Christian. You are a Christian in name only, but not in reality. But if Christ changes your life, if you see yourself giving sacrificially, even joyfully out of sacrifice, for, out of service for Christ and the gospel, it's an indicator that indeed our life will be saved in the end. And this is what Jesus tells us. Verse 36, he says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, all the money, all the romance, all the boats, all the vacations in this world? What if he gains the whole world? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Here's what Jesus is saying. Can you imagine one of those balances with two plates that's kind of, you know, it's like a teeter-totter? If you took the entire world, all of the wonderful things in this world, all the good gifts that God has given us in this world, and you have put it on one plate, and then on the other plate you put Jesus, what he is saying is that Jesus will outweigh all the treasures of this world for your soul. As the song says, you can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. Many of you know Jim Carrey from various movies like Liar, Liar, Ace Ventura, Sonic is a new one. 
He is rich, he is famous, he is a successful actor. He has it all from a worldly perspective. And yet he's quoted as saying this. He says, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it is not the answer. Time and again, we have seen people who seemingly have everything, literally everything but Jesus, and they are absolutely miserable. Rich celebrities overdosing on drugs, taking their own life because they feel helpless and hopeless, even though they have all this stuff in the world. And yet we see other people who have absolutely nothing but Jesus, and they're the most joyful people on the face of the earth. Why is that? Because Jesus outweighs all the treasures of this world. Jesus continues with this final warning to the apostles. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If you are ashamed to be linked with Jesus in this world, he will be ashamed to be linked with you in the world to come. Now, he is not talking about perfection. We know that because Peter is going to deny him three times and yet will be restored. But Romans 10.9 says it very clearly. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you are saved, you will be transformed to deny yourself to carry your cross, to treasure Jesus and to claim him before others. Knowing that Jesus denied himself, Jesus treasured you and Jesus will one day claim you before the Father in heaven. Let me end with this. Near the end of the movie Torn, again, I told you I totally ruined this movie for you. Um, But the three grown boys were discussing their last name. You see, When Conrad officially legally adopted the three boys, the younger two changed their name to match his, which is Anchor. And so their last name was Anchor. But the oldest son, I think his name's Max, he actually does the documentary, kept his biological father's last name, which is Lowe. Understandably so, he was the only one who really had any experience with his father, his biological father. But what is interesting is in the movie is that Max seems torn about this decision to not take on this new last name of Anchor. And the reason why he's torn about this is because he understands that however he perceives Conrad's identity informs his own identity. Whoever he sees Conrad to be informs who he is. And so if Conrad is his dad, which he calls him dad, and yet he goes by a different last name, there is a tear between who he claims his dad to be and his own last name. And and again, there's compassion. It's it's a tough situation for a child to be in. But in today's passage, Jesus asks us the most important question any of us will encounter, which is this question about his identity. Who do you say that I am? But here's the thing, the way that you answer this question about Jesus' identity will also define your identity. I know that Father's Day is a joyous day for many of us, but for others of us, it is a very painful day because our father was neglectful or absent or abusive or uninvolved, and there is real pain there. But here's the thing, who you say Jesus is with your words and with your will and with your walk 
determines who you are. And if you claim Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, your big brother, then this is what God says about your identity. Romans 9, 26. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. And so who do you say Jesus is? With your words, do you profess he is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah? It's a great start. It's a good thing. But who do you say Jesus is with your will? Do you say he is the one who must die for your salvation? And who do you say Jesus is with your walk? Is Jesus just an add-on to your life, or is he your ultimate treasure? If you, with your words and your will and your walk, identify Jesus as the Christ, then it will define your own identity and you are a child of the living God. And so we have so much to give thanks for this Father's Day, not only for our earthly fathers, but even more so that we have been adopted by a heavenly Father. Let's pray. Lord God, as we wrestle with this question, Who are you? How do we identify you? God, may our words match our heart, match our actions. May we profess with our words and our hearts and our actions that you are indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And because of that, may we live in the joy of knowing that we with you are children of the living God. Lord, as we are turning to your table, we are reminded that that our salvation Uh, could happen in no other way, that you must have died for our sin and that you must have risen again to give us newness of life. And so as we take this table, let us be reminded of the Father's love for us who sent his only son to die on our behalf that he could win us to himself. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.